Hi, I'm Paul Havershoud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Do we learn or not? And when we learn new things, aren't we therefore responsible for understanding it and use it to make our lives much more in tune with that which we want to achieve? Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. If we do not make a commitment to that, we'll continue to be repeating the same thing over and over. We continue to live in the same kind of world. Today, a 40-year-long quest to understand Canada's education system. Okay, I'm Carl James. My background is sociology. Professor Carl James of York University is the winner of the 2022 Canada Council Killam Prize for Social Sciences. The $100,000 award is among the most prestigious prizes given to a researcher in this country. And I do lots of work with youth, very interested in the whole process of learning and how youth become the people they are. Among his best-known works, longitudinal studies of black and racialized people in Ontario, meaning interviewing the same individuals over years, even decades, observing their life trajectories in real time. We have to constantly think of the system. And when I think of the system, I think of the system as the individual in relation to the institutions, in relation to laws, values, and all those operated as systems. So people don't individually come to the ideas just on their own. We have to constantly be thinking about how those ideas have been informed by that history that they might not have been exposed to, or the history that, that they never take time to critically evaluate and assess the basis on which it was built. On this episode, why the system itself is a slow learner and where Carl James sees its best chances to improve. All right, so hi, I am Kim Tavares, and I currently work as a vice principal for human rights, equity, and inclusion at University of Toronto Schools. I met Carl when I did my Bachelor of Education. At that time, York had these cohort programs, and there was a program called Urban Education. And they had a, it was a program specifically designed to teach new teachers about how to work in urban environments. And there was this assumption about anybody in that program, if you were racialized, that you were there because of your color, right? You, you didn't get in because of what you brought, um, but, oh, are you here because of the access program? I didn't know what access was at the time. Um, I frankly had switched to the program because it was closer to my house than the program York had originally put me in. And I remember like just that being my entry into the program, you already felt like you didn't quite belong. And there were very few racialized people in the program. So you kind of get the first day and you kind of look around and there was just a couple of us and we, we made eye contact and we kind of sat together, I don't know, partly 
you know, fear partly coming together, just, you know, having somebody who's who's possibly going through some of the same, why are you here moments that you are. And you get halfway through the day and the door opens and in walks this man, you know, in his jeans and his t-shirts, a little scruffy looking. And I'm like, who is this person? And he stood at the back and he scanned the room and he saw our group, you know, of kind of racialized people. He made eye contact and he walked over to our table. And at that point we had like Timbits or something on the table. And I remember he just, he didn't say a word to us. He looked at us, kind of put his hand in the Timbit grabbed a Timbit and walked on it. And you know, you're know, you kind of like, who is this person? Why is their hand in my food? Like, is their hands clean? Who are you? And then he proceeded to walk to the front of the room. And we realized that he was the prof. And for most of us, it was this, you know, I went to school here and it was the first black prof I had ever seen. I didn't even know, like, he gave the idea in this moment that it was possible <laughs> to be black and a professor in such spaces. And it was a very cool moment. And, you know, you realize after that his looking around the room, making eye contact, and that gesture of eating with us, eating from us, was a way to say, I see you, I'm here with you, without uttering a word. I always place myself as a student of sociology. Because when you say you're a student of sociology, you mean you're always learning. You're always paying attention to the context that you're learning in. And you're always looking for new information because you never find you've reached everything. Hi, I'm Leanne Taylor. I'm an associate professor in the Faculty of Education at Brock University. And I have known Carl for more than 20 years. First is my uh, as a master's student supervisor, and then as a PhD supervisor when I was at York. And so what I always remember as a graduate student coming to Carl's office and finding a lineup of students eagerly awaiting and wanting to chat with him or bounce off ideas, often long after faculty have left for the day, and he always made time for each of them. One of the projects that I had the pleasure of working with him on was the project that led to the current book, first-generation student experiences in higher education counter-stories. It features the stories and experiences of students who were the first in their family to attend university. We met with these students um, weekly and bi-weekly. We conducted interviews. They wrote journals. And we kept in touch with them through social media, through all different types of formats over the last 20 years, which is incredible and actually something quite unique. You don't usually see projects that have that kind of longitudinal impact. What that then allows us to see is that some were quite successful, some moved on to do graduate school, law degrees, but others for different circumstances didn't experience the same kind of success. I constantly revisit people with whom I spoke earlier because I always think I have incomplete information about the person, what has happened since I talked to them two years ago, five years ago, etc. I became involved in this project as a PhD student and Carl invited me to be a research assistant as I was doing my doctoral studies. The project received funding to find students who experienced barriers who may not have necessarily attended university otherwise. So we worked through local community partners and schools in Toronto to encourage students to apply for this particular program. 
Students then applied. They wrote a letter of application um, describing why they uh, were interested in post-secondary education in university and in college. There was a college cohort as well. And they were selected, a certain group were selected and admitted into the program. I knew it as a bridge in the solitudes program. Hi, my name is Kwame Leslie Dugan. I am a new world diverse attorney on the constant search for purpose in helping small businesses and some larger ones find ways to achieve their broader vision and mission. All the people in Leanne and Carl's study were granted anonymity. So in the published research, Kwame goes by a pseudonym, Kofi. Kofi came through and was really, really excited about education. And I guess as a Black Ghanaian son of an immigrant, he really wanted to pursue law. And he was one of the ones who was actually very successful. And he ended up moving through the program, went to England to the London School of Economics. He ended up going to Columbia to get a law degree. He became fluent in Mandarin and went to China to study. And he now has his own practice in, um, in New Jersey. I still call Toronto home. Whenever I touch down or touch the ground, I just get re-energized when I'm back on, uh, on Toronto soil. When applying to a university, I did not have a template. So I applied with a hope I'd get in, but I did not, it wasn't a given. Kwame remembers the day when representatives from McGill University visited his high school. They'd come to speak with prospective students. The meeting took place in the guidance counselor's office. And I only learned about it walking by and seeing a bunch of students, none of which looked like me in there. And later on, I learned it was McGill was here. And there were some, you know, and, and the people who said, yeah, it was McGill, had a confidence about saying that, um, that I just had not experienced and was not aware that it was a, an option. And the reason I remember I learned about McGill was I asked, one of the counselors, and she said, oh, that's McGill, but you know, you have to have some really, really, really good grades to get get in there. And I said, so, you know, what's, you know, can I, am I, you know, is something, can I learn more? And she said, some of the effect of, you know, there's some great community colleges out there as well. She just saw sort of a black face peering into the door, wondering where all the pretty much mostly white kids talking to this strange person in this office. And it wasn't that I had no interest or that I wasn't qualified to go. It was just that it wasn't in the realm of possibility because I had no, 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 nothing to work with. I had no um, point of reference. Kwame still thinks back on that scene. Him as a teenager standing outside the guidance counselor's office his sense of the distance separating him from the other kids. It reminds him of a story about the American ballet star, Misty Copeland. There's a child's book um, I read to my, my daughter sometimes, and the first line is, the distance between you and I is longer than forever. It's about, you know, uh, a girl who wants to become a, a dancer in a ballet. 
And, you know, she's looking at Misty. She's black looking at Misty. It's like, couldn't imagine what it is. So the distance between, you know, you and I is longer than forever. And throughout the story, you know, Misty explains that I stood where you were and I started where you were. Um, I didn't have a Misty to be like, oh, you know, because you want to become a, a lawyer. So you don't, you don't get taken advantage of and your people you care about don't get taken advantage of. Well, for me, that distance was very real between longer than forever. And so even the McGill conversation was longer than forever. In Kwame's case, the reasons he wasn't invited into the McGill conversation are complex. He arrived in Canada in time to begin school in grade five. He didn't realize it then, but some of his peers had already entered a program for gifted students. The assessments to enter the program took place during grade three. I didn't know that existed until middle school. What he did know was his grades were good and he didn't like feeling overlooked. Yeah, so I made an appointment and went in to see her. And um, this is the same guidance counselor who had said, you know, there's some really good community colleges. You should think about it. But then when I went and saw her, she pulled up my grades and said, wow, yeah, really good university you can consider. Um, I, I think even as she looked at the grades, something else dawned on her because she didn't press it. And I, I think it was a, yeah, you know what, you could. But it wasn't sort of a, a, a given in the same way the other the kids who were in McGill meeting were confident that it was possible. It was still a, yeah, yeah, you could get there. And as I reflect on it, it could have been that it was novel to her for someone who looked like me to be in her room talking about this. Maybe if she had heard of me through some other avenue, she might have been more ready to deal with it but it's possible that she just was like well these schools have a there's a lot that's required of you the resources involved including the financial maybe perhaps they just it was a lot for a process right now these are things none of this was said mind you i had other experiences going through that school that all sort of give me a, a mosaic from which to work with to say there was an unconscious bias that limited her ability, that limited her in seeing what my potential was. And and I've seen this, and it's not, it wasn't done purposely. She didn't have any malice in her heart, let me be clear. Um, she just didn't have the tools with which to recognize what it was that was challenging her. I did have an ally, fortunately, in that office who was actually, she was a secretary and she looked out for me and she was like, hey, I'm here. And she's actually the one, I think, who, yeah, Miss Salmon, she's the one who suggested I consider this applying to the Bridges program. Students were informed that to be involved in the program, which would provide mentoring support, they would also receive financial support that would cover part of their tuition over three years of their involvement in the program. And they would also receive an honorarium for participating in what we called the Common Hour. So these were weekly one-hour sessions where they would meet um, with both Carl and I um, 
and often uh, just me at certain times with, uh, with the cohort in their group to talk about their experiences. So these were really mentorship meetings, um, but they were also part of the research. So they were tape recorded and they understood that this was part of the research project, but they evolved into something much more than that. So they became spaces of support where they would seek guidance from me and from the other researchers, but also they developed bonds with each other. One of the students, he came in and he didn't have a email address. So I remember, and he still talks to me today about how I created his first email address at the time. Or there was some who had uh, didn't understand how to use the university library. So I would support them in how to use the university library. One of the reasons I wanted to go to university was to get a chance to get out of my surroundings. I just needed, I wanted to see something different. All right. Three brick buildings every day and having getting stopped and frisked by cops every every summer. It was just, just tiring. I wanted out. I made a deal with my mom. If I got into this program and I was going to take it, I was going to want to live on campus. And so I lived on campus at York. And there, there were study, study spaces. I didn't, I didn't know what study space was. I knew how to sit on the couch and, and work. And so there were students who went every day, certain time to go put their books and work, right? Same with the library. This was not what I was used to. Right. I was I lived a lot on creativity and talent, but what I saw there was skill and habit. And this, you know, it, I couldn't just go up to the students and say, So what's going on here? What are you up to? Like <laughs> what is this? So I didn't know what I didn't know. And I was able to talk about that in these weekly sessions that we had with the group. We met every week with bagels and cream cheese or samosas. I think every week we had bagels, we had cream cheese, and we had samosas and coffee, and we would just chat. And um, I got to develop relationships with these students over the years. I went to weddings and I got to meet children over the years. I don't think I was processing what they were asking me. They were asking my experiences that, yes, I could answer, I could relate to, but was not top of mind. Because what was top of mind was what classes, what am I going to focus on? What are, what am I going to be majoring in? But the questions they were asking were outside of, sorry, what was being done in class. And it was sort of a, they were asking questions that would seem very somewhat mundane. How do you feel with your with your classmates? Like, um, how, like, how are you, how are you dealing with family at home? Like, how, what are you telling them? Like, what do you? And they were asking questions that dealt with like, our complexities. How this related to what they're doing was not clear to me. It was, it was life, like as I knew it, and they were asking me what I knew to be particularly uninteresting, but they were interested in it. For us, having a place to share our fairly private experiences, thoughts, the questions about what's what's normal. Uh, none of us have come from standard normal. So here, what is what's normal to see around here? What's what can you expect of yourself? And how should we be 
Um, and what can we ask for? What is what do we have a right to expect? Yeah, I think being in that space and being able to have others who were part of the institution there for us was a powerful, though, uh, I think it was powerful in a way that perhaps we didn't understand at that time. I would say there's very few projects that explore this kind of um we use the word intervention, but this kind of support that blends, frankly, research with mentorship. We did life history interviews so we could really get a sense of students' early year experiences all the way through school, from you know early years through high school. Um, and we were able to piece together all of those experiences that shaped their experiences in higher education. And then later, what experiences higher education had for their perception of family, for the legacy they felt they were leaving for their children. There was one participant in particular who ended up leaving the program. And he was a Kenyan refugee. And he experienced incredible barriers and so on throughout his experience in the in the in university he made the decision to leave after his second year as he was about to have a uh, a child with his partner at the time and we lost touch with him and several years later a few years ago in fact we uh, got in touch with him and he introduced us to his son, who at the time was 18 years old <laughs> and was wanting to pursue college. And he put us in contact and saying, can you please help my son? Can you please speak with him? Because he's trying to figure out whether college or university is the right path for him. And so although this one student didn't actually complete the program, or graduate university, the importance of the networks and the program itself allowed him to pass on that support to his son, whose energy he's now putting into to help make sure he succeeds. A lot of things had to happen for me to get just to York University. And then a lot of things had to happen for me to be able to succeed. I can say part of it is who I am and my willingness and my openness, my willingness to challenge nor what the norms were. A good amount of it was just out of my hands, completely out of my hands. There were far stronger, more deserving people who were streamed out versus streamed in to the educational opportunity, um, and not for lack of talent, and not for lack of skill. My, my hope is some of this, this research doesn't just stay an academic idea, but people who are, do care about their, their country and sort of the world they live in recognize that those who you see as successes are, you have to look at where they started, and what they, you know, and who, who helped groom them to that point and, and recognize that there are, for every one, there are thousands who could have taken their place. Some students did end up not being able to successfully complete their program. Some of them 
I believe from what they were telling us, probably would have left. They stayed, but would have left had it not been for the program that was able to intervene. And not just in terms of helping them with their schoolwork, but helping them understand the conflicts and the challenges they were experiencing at home. So realizing that when when students enter post-secondary education, the assumption often is that they've quote unquote made it by entering university or college. But what we realize, and one of the reasons why the program was put into place, is a recognition that um, access doesn't guarantee success or opportunity, that uh, the barriers and the challenges often follow individuals right into the institution, which also is built on a lot of these kinds of inequities and reproduces them in different ways or presents new kinds of challenges. One of the students, Laura, spoke about and continues to write about if it weren't for her experience and support that she received through this program. She would not have been able to build the family that she built to encourage her own children to pursue higher education in that way, or to have the resources and the the wherewithal to endure barriers and challenges that she experienced, the sexism she experienced, the financial barriers she experienced um, throughout her program. You know, I think what their stories do is really help us reimagine this idea of post-secondary education that is a place where students not just go to study and learn, but develop certain kinds of identities. Many of them found a sense of community with local organizations on campus to build their understanding of racialized groups or what it means to be sexual minority, what it means to come from a working class background. Those were all experiences that shaped their worldviews and their trajectories that they found within the university. And so by talking to them so long over time, we were able to get at the nuances of what university meant for them and what they valued and also what they needed as a form of support and how those experiences mattered in terms of the choices they ultimately ended up making that shaped their lives now 20 years later. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Carl James is the winner of the 2022 Killam Prize for the Social Sciences. The Killams have been called Canada's Nobel Prize. Each year, these $100,000 awards go to leading scholars in each major area of study. As well as the social sciences, there are winners in the humanities, engineering, natural sciences, and health sciences. The jury announcing Carl James's win said he was, quote, among the first to tackle and name issues of racial inequity, especially in the realm of education. 
In Dr. James's report, we see a lot of startling figures. Toronto District School Board, Board 2015. Among expelled students, 2% were East Asian, 48% were Black. 2011, Black population of Toronto, 8.5%. Applied versus academic courses. A scathing report cited Ontario's second largest school board, that's Peel District, for widespread and systemic anti-Black racism. John Hopkins University showed that low-income Black students who have at least one Black teacher at elementary school are significantly more likely to graduate high school. And we, and must, we must ensure, ensure that, that all members of our school community are given equitable opportunities for success. The evidence shows that black students are overrepresented in programs and courses that generally don't lead to post-secondary education studies. Yeah, it's the norm and nothing's changing really. A lot of people agree that something has to be done. With us now to explore what needs to be done to get educators across the province back on track, we welcome Carl James, the Jean Augustine Chair in Education, Community and Diaspora in the Faculty of Education at York University. What I think he's arguing is that we don't learn from these patterns that he's shown us in his work has been with us for decades. Kim Taveras is a former student of Carl James. She's now Vice Principal for Human Rights, Equity and Inclusion at the University of Toronto Schools. We asked her to pick one work by Professor James that she considers especially influential. Towards Race Equity in Education looked at Black student experiences across the greater Toronto area. To me, it was a brilliant piece and speaks to who Carl is because what he did is he begins by situating the work, I think, into the 80s, if not earlier, right? And talks about how these are not new conversations. We have been talking about disparities in achievement. We've been talking about the sifting and sorting of students since the 70s, since the 80s. And what he does is he builds a narrative. This document Kim's describing from 2017 pushed some key facts into public consciousness, especially in Ontario. You can find statistics from the report reappearing in media stories even now, such as 42% of Black high school students were suspended at least once, compared to just 15% of other racialized students. Carl James also gathered many anecdotes that might sound familiar today. Black students spoke of teachers telling them to drop science and to focus on sports instead, to abandon academic study streams and take less challenging applied courses. The report's widely credited with influencing Ontario's decision to stop streaming grade 9 students, a decision that brought it in line with other provinces. And Kim Taveras says that report Carl James did in 2017 is still a powerful document. He really focuses putting the blame on the system and highlights how when we continue to put the blame on the student, it absolves the system of responsibility for what they've created. And Carl is very good at positioning us back in that conversation saying, well, no, look at what, look at our data. When you have, you know, that level of disproportionate number of students in applied and locally developed and essentials courses, that doesn't speak to a one-off. That speaks to a systemic problem of who we let in and who we keep out. If you are going to perpetuate racism through the teaching of your program, then I am going to push to hold you accountable for that. If you are going to ensure that my child does not have the future that they want 
and instead of the future that you are determining for them. Because when you stream my child, you are limiting the options and choices that they have. So if you are going to do that, then that's not my child's fault. That's your fault for limiting the spaces and the relationships and the ability to maneuver space that my child can engage in. And he's very good at pushing for us to own a narrative of Canada that is more honest than the one that we tend to exalt. There can be misunderstandings sometimes that when Carl pushes us to interrogate our thinking, our understanding, our beliefs, it is in order for us to become a better people. It is in order for us to do, you know, the right thing. I think when a chef is trying out a new meal and they taste it and realize there's a bit too much salt, so they add a potato, or when they do this, that level of critique allows them to make a better recipe. And when he says we need to do this, there is a way that people can push back against it because nobody wants to hear themselves defined as a racist. Nobody wants to hear themselves defined in these ways. And so we're more concerned with the term. People are more concerned with being called racist than the actual acts that they are committing, right? And what he is saying is, I'm, 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 I want us to have a better recipe. I want us to be able to critique our work, not to bring you down, but to build you up. And if people can understand that and see that he is really working for the betterment of not just Black students, but all students, then I think they can see his work and be able to self-reflect in a way that would allow us to move forward differently. Kimberly Tavares, Vice Principal for Human Rights, Equity and Inclusion at University of Toronto Schools. And Carl James is here with me now. Hello and welcome to Ideas. Thank you very much for having me on the program. First of all, congratulations on winning the 2022 Killam Prize for Social Science. What did you think when you heard you'd won? I thought it was incredible. I I wasn't very familiar with Killam. At least I was familiar with Killam more in terms of the research that it supports. But I didn't know that there was this annual award so I had to look up to find out more about it after wow. I'd heard about it. So that's tell you how, how much it was quite something for me to have received. A big surprise. Yes. You also have a new book out titled First Generation Student Experiences in Higher Education with the subtitle Counter Stories. We just heard from your co-author, Leanne Taylor, and one of the participants in the study, Kwame Dugan, Counter Stories. What exactly do stories like Kwame's run counter to? Counter to, quote unquote, the normal story. There are a number of things about what Kwame said that showed you the counterness of his story. For example, he talked about going into the, uh, having to talk to the teacher about wanting to go to university and the guidance counselor did not think of him as being able to be able to make it to university. And then she looked at his grades and she saw, oh yeah, it is possible. And then, but the other thing about his story as well is that, as he said, there was somebody who was supporting in the office, yeah. the, 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 the secretary or the support staff. Again, that's counter to what we would have expected. We would have expected that the teacher would have referred him, would have expected that the guidance counselor would have referred him, or if he was into sports, would have expected any number of other people. No, those weren't the people who showed him. So when we think of the lives of young people or lives of every, anyone, it's not 
necessarily just one story yes. that or the, the regular story that we need to. So, so we wanted to show that these young people reached where they are through roots that we might not have thought of otherwise. Well, he says a lot of things had to happen for yes. him to arrive where he did. You mentioned the secretary. What else? Notice he also thought of the regular meetings that we had at university for him Mm -hmm. and having to talk about things, you know, that he thought was not interesting, talk about peer and family relations. Why would we want to know about that? But those were also very significant for us in order to be supportive of him and supportive of the students generally. The fact that they were able to exchange uh, ideas, etc. You know, I'm involved in a study that the question, I I pose the question, a scholarships enough. You know, so I think every so often of us, many parents, and especially many racialized parents, immigrant parents and black parents, will want their children to go to university because they think investing in education is something that's useful. And if I cannot give my children anything, I might not have the finances. The fact that I support them going to university and they can be on their way. Mm-hmm. But I, I always think of it, you know, like the parents... And the community members and all of us through scholarship will drop the student off. This is the image I have. We'll drop that young person off at the gate of the university and say, no, we've done our job. Go in and do well, and we're going to be here to support you. But notice, once they're in, there are no supports there sometimes in university, especially for those who are first generation to help them navigate the university and the, the policies, the programs, etc. So this opportunity we had to provide that hour-long meeting every week in order to help them, for me, was one of the ways that we have to think of those first generations. And research today mm-hmm. shows in many of the OECD countries that most students entering university, whether in Canada or the U.S., elsewhere, are first generation. First generation meaning that their parents might not have gone to university in the country, but the parents might have had university, but still having that first generation experience. That is. So those are the things I think will enable our young people to be successful in our society. So what did you conclude? And I know there's a lot that you've concluded, but what's the big headline from the way some students in the program flourished at university after they were dropped off at the gate and others not so much? Yes, that we just cannot think of one approach is going to fit all our students and enable them to be successful. That's one. The other thing I I think of, you know, we might have constructed what going to university means or how it might enable students. And those constructs might have been from 20, 30, 40 years ago. We have to develop new models now Mm -hmm. for enabling and supporting our students in university today. And more so, given covid And it has exacerbated some of the inequities, you know. And it's not just simply students finishing high school and having done their work virtually in high school, because I think there's going to be a long-term effect. And Mm -hmm. this effect from from then is going to be seen at university. In addition to that, today then we have the uh, EDI, uh, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, and Decolonization conversations we're having. And therefore, what does that mean? How are we going to put that into effect Mm -hmm. as we enable and support our young people to be successful in in university? It's, it's, It's interesting to hear you, of course, use the word success, successful. What did you learn from the participants about the meaning of success in this context? You know, 
as you ask a question, I think of one person who did not complete. He dropped out after the first year of <laughs> university. His parents came from the Caribbean. The parents wanted him to go to university, and he did, and he went through. And we, we, we lost touch with him after he dropped out. And then, then we found he was running for, uh, for federal uh, running as a candidate for the federal election recently. And mm-hmm. so we got in touch with him and we, we invited him into our conversation to find out, you know, how he's how he is, what university might have meant for him and what it means now. And for him, he saw what he got as successful because he's able to understand what it takes to go to university, understood what university meant. And he, he, as he said to us, he got what he wanted. He's able to do the work, this mm-hmm. social service work that he's doing today in order to help people. So for him, success might not necessarily, for young people and for everyone, success might not come in the same form. Yes. You know, for, for Kwame, yes, success came in him, um, completing York, going to London and then doing a degree in, in England, going on to learn Mandarin, and now uh, a lawyer. That's mm-hmm. success. And that's interesting because that's, we would see, yes, that's success. That's what university has mm-hmm. enabled, and that's what we expect of you. This other person who went to university and dropped out, and he would think of himself as also successful because he's able to do what he wants now. He has a sense of the world and the community needs that he... And he He's fulfilling them just as Kwame's fulfilling what he, mm-hmm. uh, the needs that he's working on. Mm-hmm. You, of course, have spoken repeatedly to these people. I'm wondering just what it was like listening now to Leanne and to Kwame describe what it is that you've been up to for so many years. It's really important and I think uh, heartening to see and to hear that some of it has meant so much to them and its encouragement. It also reflects for me that the fact that the award that I received might speak to the work that I've done. But the work I've done, of course, has been su- su- supported by these people. <laughs> you know, the, the, the group of young people that I talk to, the fact that I've enabled them and they have enabled me to be able to be at this point. So it's what What's most important, and I think what I would we would always want to say, is how achievements, and Kwame alluded to this very strongly, achievements that people make and might attain have come through any number of supports they have received on their way. And so as, so as I listen to Leanne and Kwame, I, I, of course, I have to take uh, respect to the fact that who I am today has been enabled by them. There's a beautiful symmetry to that. This new book that you have coming out builds on a line of inquiry that you've pursued since the late 70s. It could be called The Question of Meritocracy. What have you been able to show about the role that merit and hard work play in a person's life story? Uh, Merit is always up for interpretation. When we think of what Kwame said about Miguel, and the opportunity and possibility of going to Miguel, the, the idea of, you know, we can say he merits the idea to go to Miguel. But 
McGill was constructed as this university that's outside of his reach, given what it is, etc., and therefore college might be better. So what is merit then? Does he merit going to McGill or his merits going to college? So merit is ultimately comes down to some subjective ways in which we understand what is possible or some of the ways in which we, we think that is what you're deserving <laughs> because that's all we think of how you are. So merit is not without the interpretation of the person who is speaking. Yeah. It's not without the interpretation that the society of the, or the messages the society has given about what is deserving and what we think is meritorious. Mm-hmm. And merit does not sit out there. And yes, you merit what you have. It's, it also depends on so many things coming into play and intersecting with it. If we imagine Canada's education system as a student itself. Is it learning? Is it learning about the experience of black youth? I don't think it's, I think in some ways it's, it's paying, it might pay attention, but I don't think it's learning enough or fast enough or paying attention. You know, in, in one way, I think one of the first steps I always think towards that learning is using data, getting data about who our students are, where they come from, how do we understand the backgrounds and the experiences of our students. So for me, the fact that data has been introduced in many of the schools in Ontario, for example, and I know in other places like in British Columbia, in in Nova Scotia and others, yes, they are collecting data. So to me, that's the first step Mm -hmm. in knowing and working with the student and, and paying attention to education and what education could do. Beyond that, then, we still have a long way to go. What would you count among the most important facts and figures that are still missing from the picture of how, of how Canadian schools and universities are treating racialized young people? I think we, in Canada, we, we need to still come to terms with race and racism conversations right now about an EDI uh, pointing towards some recognition that we need to get hold of as we will hear generally systemic racism and address systemic racism and how systemic racism is operating to affect the lives and the educational lives of students. So yes, that's where we're going. But at the same time, I think we need to do more than just simply say, yes, we recognize systemic racism, but also to understand that it's not just simply the classroom teacher or the professor that we have to work with. We have to work with the larger society. It has to be dealt with through the media. Mm-hmm. It has to be dealt with through uh, through government policies and programs. So the, the messaging that we give about racialized people and understanding of racism needs to also be bigger and taken up in a bigger way. One change that we've seen in public conversation here in Canada and in the U.S. is the use of the term critical race theory. It was, it, at one point, it was, it was a phrase that you only heard in universities, but now it's, it's all over the media, as I'm sure you've seen as well. How do you view the role of critical race theory in classrooms? You know, I, I don't know if, if critical race theory are in 
school classrooms, mm. as some of the trustees or so many people might claim. Mm-hmm. It's not in the classroom. Uh, it is, and if it's in the university classrooms, yes, it's going to be introduced by someone or people to, to, to as many other theories, you know, just like we introduce critical theory, critical pedagogy, feminism, all those. These become theories that become frameworks that we use to understand the world in which we live in. So critical race theory for me I understand it's one of those frameworks. It's one of those many frameworks. And it, it, for me, it, it says, okay, I need to look at race as one of the factors affecting people's lives. And I might reach for race theory to enable me to, to understand how race might be operating, just as I might look for critical feminism mm-hmm. to understand if I'm going to use an, an analysis where I want to center gender. So, so we, we need to see it that way. For, for In terms of schools, I just think teachers use a perspective like uh, that they think might enable them to reach students. And just like teachers might use critical pedagogy in the classroom, they're not going to teach critical pedagogy. Critical pedagogy is enabling them and helping them to frame that which they're using as they teach. Mm-hmm. They might enter the discussion with their students, conscious that race, racism, colonialism have been factors in the student lives in our society. And therefore, they engage the work that they do with students, understanding that they need to also challenge and challenge that which might not be very useful in the classroom at that time. So that's how I would see how it's used. And so it's not like you're going into the classroom and saying, you have to do this critical race theory, and this is race. I, I don't think that's happening in our classes. So what I'm gleaning from what you're saying is that there's a perhaps a, a misunderstanding of what it is that critical race theory is or does. So I'm wondering what, beyond misunderstanding, what you really think motivates the backlash against the term. Uh, I think the, the, the motivation might come from the idea that it's how we understand race and racism in our society. To introduce race is to, to is one would think, if you say, yes, the person, race is op- operating in this case, it's to think that the person is racist. And that doesn't mean that that way. It's recognizing that race is a factor, to recognize the fact of the beginning of our very society. And when we think of colonialism, when we think of how Canada gets established in reaction to Turtle Island, we have to think of how race might have been a factor. So we just can't dismiss it. (laughs) And again, it also has to do with how we have accepted history and what history we have been taught and how we have presented that development of Canada to date and not seeing it as part of that colonial structure Mm -hmm. that we have inherited today that we need to respond to. Do you think fear might be playing a part as well here? Yes, fear might be playing a part. And also, I think it's when we think of the change in population, we think of the ideas that are getting out there that we need to grapple with. It's fear, fear on one part. I also think it's, it's sometimes it's difficult to, to, to accept change. It's difficult to accept that all along I've been having an interpretation of the world or my context or the life I've inherited, I've been wrong mm. in doing that, and therefore I need to change. One is not going to immediately say, oh, sure, 
thanks very much for the new information. I'm going to give up, <laughs> give up the the what I've thought to be the case. Mm-hmm. So yes, fear, and that fear, I think, has been something that we need to understand that it needs to be worked at. I imagine those would be the first two steps in trying to persuade people to change. What else do you think would sell? How would you sell recommendations for change to people who might feel pretty well served by the status quo? Yes. It's good to come through relationships, through conversations. I know in this era of EDI, uh, EDID, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and Decolonization, we have lots of companies doing these workshops and doing these uh, motivational speaking speeches, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think it's, uh, while they might be interesting, I also think it's through sometimes these conversations, these individual conversations, through, through exposure to new ideas and to different ways of understanding the the world. And I think our interdependent world now is really coming into being when we think of what's happening with regard to climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So, so when I think change then and accepting change is further accepting that where we are today is an interdependent world and the lives that we live are affected by others and we affect others as well. Those change can only come when we accept those as realities. I always ask the Killam Prize winners what you plan to do with the prize money. You get a $100,000 reward. What are you going to do to spend it? <laughs> oh, you you know, it's it would be interesting to think of of getting something to celebrate uh, from for myself. But, you know, ever so often you do all this research that you're doing, and as the Jean Augustine Chair, of course, making contributions to graduate students' work is some of the things that I would want to do uh, and have done with it. At the same time, I also feel that the funds, the, the, the money, is very useful for, for me to start thinking of my big project. You know, one of the things I've thought of, really, the uh, one of the books that I wrote about maybe 20 years ago, and it's been used in introductory sociology, I need to revise it significantly, but mm-hmm. I need to have it done in a less in a more journalistic form. So I also thought that I would want to use some of that money to update it and to also revise that book so that it can get the attraction that would be useful. Well, congratulations again. And Dr. Carl James, thank you for all your insights and for spending time with us. Thanks very much for having me and for engaging me in this conversation. You're listening to an interview with Carl James, winner of the 2022 Killam Prize for the Social Sciences. This episode was produced by Tom Howell. Thanks to Michelle James, Marianne Chambers, Kai James, and all of the guests on this program. You can go to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, for more information on Professor James's work and the Canada Council Killam Prizes. Note that as of 2023, they'll be known as the National Research Council Killam Prizes. The NRC has now taken over the Killam program. Technical production, Nick Bonin and Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas. 
and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.